Section 20 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 5. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 20. Dissension and Separation of the Greek and Roman Churches, A.D. 1054, by Henry Fonshawe Tozer and Joseph Deharb. In the division of the Greek Catholic Church from that at Rome, Protestant writers see a very natural and legitimate separation of two equal powers. Roman Catholics, regarding the papal supremacy as established from the beginning, treat the division as a plot by evil and malignant men. Both viewpoints are here given. The Eastern, or Greek Christian Church, now known as the Holy Orthodox, Catholic, Apostolic, Oriental Church, first assumed individuality at Ephesus and in the Catechetical School of Alexandria, which flourished after A.D. 180. It early came into conflict with the Western or Roman Church, the Eastern Church enacting creeds and the Western Church discipline. In the 3rd century, Dionysius, Bishop of Rome, accused the Patriarch of Alexandria of error in points of faith, but the patriarch vindicated his orthodoxy. Eastern monachism arose about 300. The Church of Armenia was founded about the same year, and the Church of Georgia, or Iberia, in 340. Constantine the Great caused Christianity to be recognized throughout the Roman Empire, and in 325 convened the first ecumenical or general council at Nicaea, Nice, when Arius, excommunicated for heresy by a provincial synod at Alexandria in 321, defended his views, but was condemned. Arianism long maintained a theological and political importance in the East and among the Goths and other nations converted by Arian missionaries. In A.D. 330, Constantine removed the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople, and thence dates the definite establishment of the Greek Church and the serious rivalry with the Roman Church over claims of preeminence, differences of doctrine and ritual, charges of heresy and inter-excommunications, which ended in the final separation of the churches in 1054. In A.D. 461, the churches of Egypt, Syria, and Armenia separated from the Church of Constantinople over the monophysite controversy on the single divine or single compound nature of the sun. In 634, the struggle with Mahometanism began. In 676, the Maronites of Lebanon formed a strong sect, which, in 1182, joined the Roman Church. In 988, Vladimir the Great of Russia founded the Greco-Russian Church, in which the Greek Church found a refuge, when Mahometanism was established at Constantinople after its capture by the Turks in 1453. Henry Fonshawe Tozer The separation of the Eastern and Western Churches, which finally took place in the year 1054, was due to the operation of influences which had been at work for several centuries before. From very early times, a tendency to divergence existed, arising from the tone of thought of the dominant races in the two, the more speculative Greeks being chiefly occupied with purely theological questions, while the more practical Roman mind devoted itself rather to subjects connected with the nature and destiny of man. In differences such as these, there was nothing irreconcilable. The members of both communions professed the same forms of belief, rested their faith on the same divine persons, were guided by the same standard of morals, and were animated by the same hopes and fears, and they were bound by the first principles of their religion to maintain unity with one another. 
But in societies, as in individuals, inherent diversity of character is liable to be intensified by time, and thus counteracts the natural bonds of sympathy, and prevents the two sides from seeing one another's point of view. In this way, it cooperates with and aggravates the force of other causes of disunion, which adverse circumstances may generate. Such causes there were in the present instance, political, ecclesiastical, and theological, and the nature of these it may be well for us to consider before proceeding to narrate the history of the disruption. The office of Bishop of Rome assumed to some extent a political character as early as the time of the first Christian emperors. By them, this prelate was constituted a sort of secretary of state for Christian affairs, and was employed as a central authority for communicating with the bishops in the provinces, so that after a while he acted as minister of religion and public instruction. As the civil and military power of the Western Empire declined, the extent of this authority increased, and by the time when Italy was annexed to the Empire of the East in the reign of Justinian, the popes had become the political chiefs of Roman society. Nominally, indeed, they were subject to the Exarch of Ravenna as vice-regent of the emperor at Constantinople, but in reality the inhabitants of Western Europe were more disposed to look to the spiritual potentate in the imperial city as representing the traditions of ancient Rome. The political rivalry that was thus engendered was sharpened by the traditional jealousy of Rome and Constantinople, which had existed ever since the new capital had been erected on the shores of the Bosporus. Then followed struggles for administrative superiority between the popes and the exarchs, culminating in the shameful maltreatment and banishment of Martin I by the emperor Constans, an event which the See of Rome could never forget. The attempt to enforce iconoclasm in central Italy was influential in causing the loss of that province to the empire, and even after the Byzantine rule had ceased there, the controversy about images tended to keep alive the antagonism, because, although that question was once and again settled in favor of the maintenance of images, yet many of the emperors, in whose persons the power of the East was embodied, were foremost in advocating their destruction. Indeed, from first to last, owing to the close connection of church and state in the Byzantine Empire, the unpopularity of the latter in Western Europe was shared by the former. To this must be added the contempt for one another's character which had arisen among the adherents of the two churches, for the Easterns had learned to regard the people of the West as ignorant and barbarous, and were esteemed by them in turn as mendacious and unmanly. In ecclesiastical matters also, the differences were of long standing. These related to questions of jurisdiction between the two patriarchates. Up to the 8th century, the Patriarchate of the West included a number of provinces on the eastern side of the Adriatic, Illyricum, Dacia, Macedonia, and Greece. But Leo the Isaurian, who probably foresaw that Italy would ere long cease to form part of his dominions, and was unwilling that these important territories should own spiritual allegiance to one who was not his subject, altered this arrangement and transferred the jurisdiction over them to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Against this measure, the bishops of Rome did not fail to protest, and demands for their restoration were made up to the time of the final schism. A further ecclesiastical question, which in part depended on this, was that of the Church of the Bulgarians. The Prince Bogoris had swayed to and fro in his inclinations between the two churches, and had ultimately given his allegiance to that of the East, but the controversy did not end there. According to the ancient territorial arrangement, 
the Danubian provinces were made subject to the archbishopric of Thessalonica, and that city was included within the Western Patriarchate, and on this ground Bulgaria was claimed by the Roman See as falling within that area. The matter was several times pressed on the attention of the Greek Church, especially on the occasion of the council held at Constantinople in 879, but in vain. The eastern prelates replied evasively, saying that to determine the boundaries of dioceses was a matter which belonged to the sovereign. The emperor, for his part, had good reason for not yielding, for by so doing he would not only have admitted into a neighboring country an agency which would soon have been employed for political purposes to his disadvantage, but would have justified the assumption on which the demand rested, viz., that the pope had a right to claim the provinces which his predecessors had lost. Thus this point of difference also remained open as a source of irritation between the two churches. But behind these questions another of far greater magnitude was coming into view, that of the papal supremacy. From being in the first instance the head of the Christian church in the old imperial city, and afterward patriarch of the West, and primus inter pares in relation to the other spiritual heads of Christendom, the Bishop of Rome had gradually claimed, on the strength of his occupying the Cathedra Petri, a position which approximated more and more to that of supremacy over the whole church. This claim had never been admitted in the East, but the appeals which were made from Constantinople to his judgment and authority, both at the time of the iconoclastic controversy and subsequently, lent some countenance to its validity. But the great advance was made in the pontificate of Nicholas I, 858 to 867, who promulgated, or at least recognized, the false decretals. This famous compilation, which is now universally acknowledged to be spurious, and can be shown to be the work of that period, contains, among other documents, letters and decrees of the early bishops of Rome, in which the organization and discipline of the church from the earliest time are set forth, and the whole system is shown to have depended on the supremacy of the popes. The newly discovered collection was recognized as genuine by Nicholas, and was accepted by the Western Church. The effect of this was at once to formulate all the claims which had before been vaguely asserted, and to give them the authority of unbroken tradition. The result to Christendom at large was in the highest degree momentous. It was impossible for future popes to recede from them, and equally impossible for other churches which valued their independence to acknowledge them. The last attempt on the part of the Eastern Church to arrange a compromise in this matter was made by the Emperor Basil II, a potentate who both by his conquests and the vigor of his administration might rightly claim to negotiate with others on equal terms. By him it was proposed, A.D. 1024, that the Eastern Church should recognize the honorary primacy of the Western Patriarch, and that he in turn should acknowledge the internal independence of the Eastern Church. These terms were rejected, and from that moment it was clear that the separation of the two branches of Christendom was only a question of time. Already in the papacy of Nicholas I, a rupture had occurred in connection with the dispute between the rival patriarchs of Constantinople, Ignatius and Photius. The former of these prelates, who was son of the emperor Michael I, and a man of high character and a devout opponent of iconoclasm, was appointed, through the influence of Theodora, the restorer of images, in the reign of her son, Michael the Drunkard. But the uncle of the emperor, the Caesar Bardas, who was a man of flagrantly immoral life, had divorced his own wife and was living publicly with his son's widow. For this incestuous connection, Ignatius repelled him from the communion. Fired with indignation at this insult, 
the Caesar determined to ruin both the patriarch and his patroness, the empress mother, and with this view persuaded the emperor to free himself from the trammels of his mother's influence by forcing her to take monastic vows. To this step Ignatius would not consent, because it was forbidden by the laws of the church that any should enter on the monastic life except of their own free will. In consequence of his resistance, a charge of treasonable correspondence was invented against him, and when he refused to resign his office, he was deposed. 857. Photius, who was chosen to succeed him, was the most learned man of his age, and like his rival, unblemished in character and a supporter of images, but boundless in ambition. He was a layman at the time of his appointment, but in six days he passed through the inferior orders which led up to the patriarchate. Still, the party that remained faithful to Ignatius numbered many adherents, and therefore Photius thought it well to enlist the support of the Bishop of Rome on his side. An embassy was therefore sent to inform Pope Nicholas that the late patriarch had voluntarily retired, and that Photius had been lawfully chosen, and had undertaken the office with great reluctance. In answer to this appeal, the Pope dispatched two legates to Constantinople, and Ignatius was summoned to appear before a council at which they were present. He was condemned, but appealed to the Pope in person. On the return of the legates to Rome, it was discovered that they had received bribes, and thereupon Nicholas, whose judgment, however imperious, was ever on the side of the oppressed, called together a synod of the Roman Church, and refused his consent to the deposition of Ignatius. To this effect he wrote to the authorities of the Eastern Church, calling upon them at the same time to concur in the decrees of the apostolic see, but subsequently, having obtained full information as to the harsh treatment to which the deposed patriarch had been subjected, he excommunicated Photius, and commanded the restoration of Ignatius by the power committed to him by Christ through St. Peter. These denunciations produced no effect on the emperor and the new patriarch, and a correspondence between Michael and Nicholas, couched in violent language, continued at intervals for several years. At last, in consequence of a renewed demand on the part of the Pope that Ignatius and Photius should be sent to Rome for judgment, the latter prelate, whose ability and eloquence had obtained great influence for him, summoned a council at Constantinople in the year 867 to decree the counter-excommunication of the Western Patriarch. Of the eight articles which were drawn up on this occasion for the incrimination of the Church of Rome, all but two relate to trivial matters, such as the observance of Saturday as a fast, and the shaving of their beards by the clergy. The two important ones deal with the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit and the enforced celibacy of the clergy. The condemnation of the Western Church on these grounds was voted, and a messenger was dispatched to bear the defiance to Rome, but ere he reached his destination he was recalled in consequence of a revolution in the palace at Constantinople. The author of this, Basil the Macedonian, the founder of the most important dynasty that ever occupied the throne of the Eastern Empire, had for some time been associated in the government with the Emperor Michael, but at length, being fearful for his own safety, he resolved to put his colleague out of the way and assassinated him during one of his fits of drunkenness. It is said that in consequence of this crime, Photius refused to admit him to the communion. Anyhow, one of the first acts of Basil was to depose Photius. A council hostile to him was now assembled, and was attended by the legates of the new pope, Hadrian II, 869. By this, Ignatius was restored to his former dignity, while Photius was degraded and his ordinations were declared void. So violent was the animosity displayed against him that he was dragged before the assembly by the emperor's guard, 
and his condemnation was written in the sacramental wine. During the ten years which elapsed between his restoration and his death, Ignatius continued to enjoy his high position in peace, but for Photius other vicissitudes were in store. On the removal of his rival, so strangely did opinion sway to and fro at this time in the empire, the current of feeling set strongly in favor of the learned exile. He was recalled, and his reinstatement was ratified by a council, 879. But with the death of Basil the Macedonian, 886, he again fell from power, for the successor of that emperor, Leo the philosopher, ignominiously removed him in order to confer the dignity on his brother Stephen. He passed the remainder of his life in honorable retirement, and by his death the chief obstacle in the way of reconcilement with the Roman Church was removed. It is consoling to learn, when reading of the unhappy rivalry of the two men so superior to the ordinary run of Byzantine prelates, that they never shared the passions of their respective partisans, but retained a mutual regard for one another. We have now to consider the doctrinal questions which were in dispute between the two churches. Far the most important of these was that relating to the addition of the Filioque Clause to the Nicene Creed. In the first draft of the Creed, as promulgated by the Council of Nicaea, the article relating to the Holy Spirit ran simply thus, I believe in the Holy Ghost. But in the second general council, that of Constantinople, which condemned the heresy of Macedonius, it was thought advisable to state more explicitly the doctrine of the Church on this subject, and among other affirmations the clause was added, Who proceedeth from the Father? Again, at the next general council, at Ephesus, it was ordered that it should not be lawful to make any addition to the creed as ratified by the Council of Constantinople. The followers of the Western Church, however, generally taught that the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as from the Father, while those of the East preferred to use the expression, the Spirit of Christ proceeding from the Father and receiving of the Son, or proceeding from the Father through the Son. It was in the churches of Spain and France that the Filioque Clause was first introduced into the Creed and thus recited in the services, but the addition was not at once approved at Rome. Pope Leo III, early in the ninth century, not only expressed his disapproval of this departure from the original form, but, in order to show his sense of the importance of adhering to the traditional practice, caused the Creed of Constantinople to be engraved on silver plates, both in Greek and Latin, and thus to be publicly set forth in the Church. The first pontiff who authorized the addition was Nicholas I, and against this Photius protested, both during the lifetime of that pope and also in the time of John VIII, when it was condemned by the council held at Constantinople in 879, which is called by the Greeks the Eighth General Council. It is clear from what we have already seen that Photius was prepared to seize on any point of disagreement in order to throw it in the teeth of his opponents, but in this matter the Eastern Church had a real grievance to complain of. The Nicene Creed was to them what it was not to the Western Church, their only creed, and the authority of the councils, by which its form and wording were determined, stood far higher in their estimation. To add to the one and to disregard the other were, at least in their judgment, the violation of a sacred compact. The other question, which, if not actually one of doctrine, had come to be regarded as such, was that of the azima, that is, the use of unfermented bread in the celebration of the Eucharist. As far as one can judge from the doubtful evidence on the subject, it seems probable that ordinary, that is, leavened bread, was generally used in the church for this purpose until the 7th or 8th century, when unleavened bread began to be employed in the West, on the ground that it was used in the original institution of the sacrament, 
which took place during the feast of the Passover. In the Eastern Church, this change was never admitted. It seems strange that so insignificant a matter of observance should have been erected into a question of the first importance between the two communions, but the reason of this is not far to seek. The fact is that, whereas the weighty matters of dispute, the doctrine of the procession of the Holy Spirit, and the papal claims to supremacy, required some knowledge and reflection in order rightly to understand their bearings, the use of leavened or unleavened bread was a matter within the range of all, and those who were on the lookout for a ground of antagonism found it here ready to hand. In the story of the conversion of the Russian Vladimir, we are told that the Greek missionary who expounded to him the religious views of the Eastern Church, when combating the claims of the emissaries of the Roman communion, remarked, They celebrate the Mass with unleavened bread, therefore they have not the true religion. Still, even Photius, when raking together the most minute points of difference between him and his adversaries, did not introduce this one. It was reserved for a hot-headed partisan at a later period to bring forward as a subject of public discussion. This was Michael Carularius, Patriarch of Constantinople, with whose name the Great Schism will forever be associated. The circumstances which led up to that event are as follows. For a century and a half from the death of Photius, the controversy slumbered, though no advance was made toward an understanding with respect to the points at issue. In Italy, and even at Rome, churches and monasteries were tolerated in which the Greek rite was maintained, and similar freedom was allowed to the Latins resident in the Greek Empire. But this tacit compact was broken in 1053 by the patriarch Michael, who, in his passionate antagonism to everything Western, gave orders that all the churches in Constantinople in which worship was celebrated according to the Roman rite should be closed. At the same time, aroused perhaps in some measure by the progress of the Normans in conquering Apulia, which tended to interfere with the jurisdiction still exercised by the Eastern Church in that province, he joined with Leo, the Archbishop of Acreta and Metropolitan of Bulgaria, in addressing a letter to the Bishop of Trani in southern Italy, containing a violent attack on the Latin Church, in which the question of the azima was put prominently forward. Directions were further given for circulating this missive among the Western clergy. It happened that at the time when the letter arrived at Trani, Cardinal Humbert, a vigorous champion of ecclesiastical rites, was residing in that city, and he translated it into Latin and communicated it to Pope Leo IX. In answer, the Pope addressed a remonstrance to the Patriarch, in which, without entering into the specific charges that he had brought forward, he contrasted the security of the Roman See in matters of doctrine, arising from the guidance which was guaranteed to it through St. Peter, with the liability of the Eastern Church to fall into error, and pointedly referred to the more Christian spirit manifested by his own communion in tolerating those from whose opinions they differed. Afterward, at the commencement of 1054, in compliance with a request from the Emperor Constantine Monomachus, who was anxious on political grounds to avoid a rupture, he sent three legates to Constantinople to arrange the terms of an agreement. These were Frederick of Lorraine, Chancellor of the Roman Church, Peter, Archbishop of Amalfi, and Cardinal Humbert. The legates were welcomed by the emperor, but they unwisely adopted a lofty tone toward the haughty patriarch, who thenceforward avoided all communication with them, declaring that on a matter which so seriously affected the whole Eastern Church, he could take no steps without consulting the other patriarchs. Humbert now published an argumentative reply to Michael's letter to the Pope, in the form of a dialogue between two members of the Greek and Latin churches, 
in which the charges brought against his own communion were discussed seriatim, and especially those relating to fasting on Saturday and the use of unleavened bread in the Eucharist. A rejoinder to this appeared from the pen of a monk of the monastery of Studium, Nicetus Pectoratus, in which the enforced celibacy of the Western clergy, on which Photius had before animadverted, was severely criticized. The cardinal retorted in intemperate language, and so entirely had the legate secured the support of Constantine that Nicetus's work was committed to the flames, and he was forced to recant what he had said against the Roman church. But the patriarch was immovable, and for the moment he occupied a stronger position than the emperor, who desired to conciliate him. At last the patience of the legates was exhausted, and on July 16, 1054, they proceeded to the church of St. Sophia and deposited on the altar, which was prepared for the celebration of the Eucharist, a document containing a fierce anathema, by which Michael Carularius and his adherents were condemned. After their departure they were for a moment recalled, because the patriarch expressed a desire to confer with them, but this Constantine would not permit, fearing some act of violence on the part of the people. They then finally left Constantinople, and from that time to the present all communion has been broken off between the two great branches of Christendom. The breach thus made was greatly widened at the period of the Crusades. However serious may have been the alienation between the East and West at the time of their separation, it is clear that the Greeks were not regarded by the Latins as a mere heretical sect, for one of the primary objects with which the first crusade was undertaken was the deliverance of the eastern empire from the attacks of the Mahometans. But the familiarity which arose from the presence of the crusaders on Greek soil ripened the seeds of mutual dislike and distrust. As long as negotiations between the two parties took place at a distance, the differences, however irreconcilable they might be in principle, did not necessarily bring them into open antagonism whereas their more intimate acquaintance with one another produced personal and national ill-will. The people of the West now appeared more than ever barbarous and overbearing, and the court of Constantinople more than ever senile and designing. The crafty policy of Alexius Comnenus in transferring his allies with all speed into Asia and declining to take the lead in the expedition was almost justified by the necessity of delivering his subjects from these unwelcome visitors and avoiding further embarrassments. But the iniquitous Fourth Crusade, 1204, produced an ineradicable feeling of animosity in the minds of the Byzantine people. The memory of the barbarities of that time, when many Greeks died as martyrs at the stake for their religious convictions, survives at the present day in various places bordering on the Aegean, in legends which relate that they were formerly destroyed by the Pope of Rome. Still, the anxiety of the Eastern emperors to maintain their position by means of political support from Western Europe brought it to pass that proposals for reunion were made on several occasions. The final attempt at reconciliation was made when the Greek Empire was reduced to the direst straits, and its rulers were prepared to purchase the aid of Western Europe against the Ottomans by almost any sacrifice. Accordingly, application was made to Pope Eugenius IV, and by him the representatives of the Eastern Church were invited to attend the council, which was summoned to meet at Ferrara in 1438. The emperor, John Paleologus, and the Greek patriarch Joseph proceeded thither. The emperor, however, on his return home, soon discovered that his pilgrimage to the west had been lost labor. Pope Eugenius, indeed, provided him with two galleys and a guard of three hundred men, equipped at his own expense, but the hoped-for suckers from western Europe did not arrive. His own subjects were completely alienated by the betrayal of their cherished faith. 
the clergy who favored the Union were regarded as traitors. John Paleologus himself did not survive to see the final catastrophe, but Constantinople was captured by the Turks, and the Empire of the East ceased to exist. End of section 20